Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Victoria Schwartz, Associate Professor of Law at Pepperdine University. We'll be discussing your article, The Celebrity Stock Market, which was recently published in the UC Davis Law Review. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Victoria, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. In your recent article, The Celebrity Stock Market, you discuss a concept of third-party investment and in other individuals' human capital development. Uh, before we discuss some of the details of your article, could you describe what this concept is? What economic role uh, does it play or what need does it fill? And what are some of the business or economic models that over the, the centuries, as you point out, have developed to, to support it? Yeah. So basically, it's a fairly familiar concept just in other spaces, right? So if a startup company or you, you're sort of an entrepreneur and you have an idea for a business, well, most of the time, you don't have the money to sort of fund your own business. So you go out, you get venture capital, you maybe go public at some point, and sort of you reach out to other people who invest in your business in exchange for sort of a share of the action. Uh, this concept is the same, only instead of thinking of it as a traditional business, now the venture that you would be investing in is a person. In the sort of earliest versions of this model, it, it, it arose in the concept of education, right? So all of us uh, need some level of education uh, to succeed in our fields of choice. The level of education might vary. And traditionally, especially in the United States, we fund that education with sort of government-backed loans where, you know, they lend you money up front, you go to school, you acquire a bunch of debt, and then you pay it off with interest. Mm at a sort of predetermined amount of interest. So that's how we usually do it. The idea here is instead of that, you know, in that world, the government doesn't really have skin in the game. If you're really successful, the government gets the exact same amount of money as if you're not really successful. The idea here is that we should treat it a little bit more similarly to what we do with corporations, which is investors and corporations do have skin in the game. And so if they uh, invest in a corporation that is successful, they do better. So similarly here, uh, through a contractual relationship, what would happen is someone would enter into a contractual relationship with someone saying, I'm going to give you money to fund, in the example so far we're talking about, your education. And in exchange for that money, rather than you paying me at a set interest rate at the back end, you're going to pay me a contractually determined percentage of your future income. So let's say we agree to contractually 10%, then if you're making $100,000 a year, I take my 10% cut. And so sort of I have an incentive to actually help you and mentor you and set you up with opportunities and do all of these things because the better off you do, the more money the investor gets. So that was sort of the original model in the educational space. And then, uh, the move sort of my paper makes is to specifically look at a subset of that concept uh, within the context of aspiring entertainers, athletes, and celebrities. 
So that's a, a new area where human equity investment has has moved in the, the past. What has there been, what movement has there been in terms of um, people getting these these efforts off the ground and the, the celebrity or the entertainer or athletic uh, market? Yes. Yeah, so uh, within the celebrity space specifically, all the same dynamics I was already talking about applies except that in some ways the need is actually much more dramatic because again, in the educational space, it's not ideal, but you can get student loans. But if you're an aspiring musician, actor, right? I'm located here in Los Angeles and I see it every time I go to a restaurant, right? If you're an aspiring actor, you can't go to the federal government and say, give me a loan to pay my bills while I'm going to audition. That's not an option that you really have. So what do you do? You wait tables, you, you know, you drive Ubers, you do all these other things in order to pay the bills while you're pursuing your career of choice, a career of choice in which sometimes education helps, but not always, or maybe education isn't enough. Uh, or maybe you're an aspiring musician or an aspiring athlete or all of these things. And so unlike in the traditional educational space and the celebrity space, sort of all sorts of different models have arisen to sort of fund these people, some of which is driving Ubers and working at restaurants. In the athletic space, we have various models depending on the sport, but like, for example, our baseball minor league system, minor league players get paid basically nothing. And they may work for many, many, many years in the minor league system getting paid basically nothing. But eventually, if they're going to make it in the big leagues, there's big money there. (laughs) And so the idea here that some uh, startups have started to pick up on is, okay, there's an opportunity. There's a business opportunity. If someone wanted to fund one of these aspiring celebrities of various sorts, again, give them money up front in ex- when they need it so that they don't have to drive Ubers or work at a restaurant or, you know, et cetera, give them that money up front so they can pay their bills now. And then if they're successful, you get a share of that action. It's it's interesting because to analogize to some of the uh, kind of more traditional markets, it's almost like uh, if I'm investing in somebody education-wise, uh, it's more of a sort of a blue chip equity investment. It's a, a pretty good uh, chance. I have limited risk, uh, probably limited upside. Uh, I can invest in a lot of people and, and their education and and within a, a certain parameter, I know that I'm going to have X number of wins and X number of, of losses, but the losses aren't going to be that big. And, and the wins probably aren't going to be that big either. You know, people might make uh, $80,000, dollars $120,000 a year or so over over whatever the time period of this contract is. Whereas the celebrity and the, the athletic uh, and performer uh, market might be uh, much more speculative, much more maybe akin to sort of a VC investment where uh, the potential returns are, are really in the tails, so to speak, and, and most of the investments might end up being uh, total losses, but the few uh, really big ones uh, make up for it. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And that's why I think uh, ideally the way it would work in the way, and I can talk about Santex in a moment, but the way that it should work is that people will diversify their portfolios, which is what we do when we're worried about sort of high levels of risk, right? And so... Uh, in the Fantex model, Fantex was one startup that actually attempted to do this within the context of athletics. And so what they did is Fantex would enter into a contractual relationship with initially uh, sort of uh, football players. 
they would enter into a contract where they say sort of, we're going to give you X millions of dollars up front in exchange for X percentage of your future income. But then Fantex would turn around and kind of sell stock and hold an IPO. These are all sort of in air quotes because they were not, it was not a real stock exchange. It was sort of a, a pseudo stock exchange where really what Fantex was doing was selling a share in their contractual share of that person's income. So, and, and that way, Fantex could actually completely spread the risk in multiple ways. One, uh, the way the contracts were designed, the contract wouldn't go through unless the IPO raised enough money. If the IPO didn't raise enough money, the contract would fall apart. It was a condition precedent. So that's one way they, they limited their risk. And then the way investors limit their risk is, you know, you only buy however many shares you buy along with everybody else. You're not the one with sort of paying the $5 million up front. So in that way, again, like we do with stocks in more traditional th- in, in a more traditional sense, you can sort of split the risk. One kind of initial question I had when, when I read, read your article, and I think probably other people might have, is, is, this, is this even legal? Uh, it, it almost seems like something that violates the 13th Amendment, if not in, in letter, then in spirit. Uh, is, is that the case? Or are there any legal... Uh, legal doctrines or rules or other maybe social norms or moral standards that that this kind of runs in, in conflict with? Yeah. So let me start with the legal question. So yeah, lots of people's initial reaction is this appears to be a 13th Amendment problem. I think it raises some of the ethical concerns of the 13th Amendment problem, but I don't think it's actually a legal 13th Amendment problem. And here's why. Uh, the 13th Amendment, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, you know, bars two categories of things, right? Slavery and then uh, involuntary servitude. And this is sort of lacking the involuntariness required for either of those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the contractual relationships are, of course, completely voluntary. And then more importantly, because of the way our contract law has developed, right, we already in contract law have a doctrine that says personal service types of contracts cannot be enforced by specific injunctions. And so that same rule would apply to this category. So let's say there's a hypothetical where someone's investors are, are mad because, you know, you, they were an aspiring musician. They finally decide they're going to stop making music. Well, that's a problem. There may be a breach of contract action there, maybe a covenant of good faith and fair dealing action there. But the remedy for that breach of contract cannot be specific performance. We're going to make you make music because that would be a 13th Amendment problem. But contract law kind of already has baked into its remedies doctrine. We don't offer that as a remedy, and therefore I don't think there's a 13th Amendment problem. I, I think that raises an interesting uh, question about the duties that the, the talent uh, side uh, of this transaction has to to the investors. Uh, if, if I'm a football player or I'm a, a musician and uh, I enter into one of these transactions – do I owe a duty to my investors to maximize my earnings over as, as long a career as I can have? Does that mean that I can't uh, retire uh, from my sport or from uh, my, my musical career, uh, even if I prefer to do something that's more fulfilling or less physically taxing or, or better for me personally? Does it mean that I need to turn down a lucrative endorsement deal for a product, even if it's something that uh, I, I find kind of distasteful or are there ways that I have to regulate my life uh, and the risks that I take uh, so as not to endanger my my long-term earning potential, whether that's uh, not riding a, a motorcycle? Uh, I, I know that's a, a clause in some 
uh, some sports contracts or not engaging in behavior or voicing uh, views that might alienate fans and impact my, my earning potential? Yeah. So uh, as you sort of alluded to, uh, those are all really hard questions, but they're also questions that our contract law has already dealt with. Uh, so not just in the athletic context, right? Many uh, entertainment contracts, especially after the Me Too movement, uh, many, many entertainment contracts have sort of behavior clauses, things that, you know, make them about, you know, all, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of clauses baked into contractual relationships already. So I guess the way I think of it is what obligation the celebrity owes to the investors should be limited and spelled out in those contracts. So if, if the contract says, and, and the reason I'm less concerned about it is because for the most part, at least their financial interests are mostly lined up, right? So uh, I, I sort of talk about in the paper limiting the percentage. I, I, I say you should never be able to give away a majority share in your own income mm-hmm. so that at all times you have more skin in the game than anybody else. And so that doesn't mean all people always maximize financially their own, uh, their own lives. Uh, I became a law professor, so that's clearly not true. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, we maximize other things and satisfaction in various ways. But I think sort of contractual law, especially the covenant of good faith and fair dealing, kind of captures that already in it, within the existing frameworks, right? So I think where someone would have a problem is, let's say you enter into one of these contracts, and there's evidence that, like, you did it knowing that as soon as you got this $5 million share, you were going to quit playing football, right? Like, as soon as the deal goes through, you're done with football, I think the investors have a fair argument that that violates the covenant of good faith and fair dealing. <laughs> but as long as you sort of in good faith are acting and operating and pursuing opportunities, I think that probably would not be a contractual obligation unless the contract specifically spelled out had an express provision that sort of, you know, supersedes the covenant of good faith and fair dealing. If you have an express provision that sort of says, our understanding is that you need to make the following choices, and then you need to spell that out contractually. You alluded just a moment ago to maybe some public policy um, limitations on these types of contracts. Are there lines or principles that you'd be willing to draw or that you, you would draw between the freedom of contract on the one hand and maybe policy concerns about uh, protecting uh, people who are entering into these, these contracts on the other? Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of as these develop, uh, as we were talking about earlier with the 13th Amendment issue, even though I don't think there's a legal 13th Amendment problem, like there are still other problems here, right? Uh, in the paper, I talked about it as sort of the ick factor, right? Mm-hmm. There are still concerns with, I think as a society, we need to talk about and be open about and debate, you know, how do we feel about a system in which we are essentially commoditizing a person in the sense that, we are buying and selling shares in a person's income. You know, there there are many people to, for whom that's going to be sort of deplorable. That said, the reason I didn't come out in favor of sort of absolutely banning it on grounds of the ick factor is because, again, I think you, you need to sort of compare it to, like, what are the alternative ways of funding it? And I think when you do that, it's not obvious to me anyway that the ick factor with these celebrity stock markets is clearly worse then the ick factor with, say, our NCAA system, where we have the NCAA getting really, really rich as people get injured and the college athletes get no share of the money. Mm-hmm. Which one of those is worth? I don't even know how to go about evaluating that. Uh, so returning to the maybe the original celebrity stock market, Fantex, which we, which we talked about uh, at the 
the top of the show. What happened uh, with with them? Did they raise money? Did they have successful IPOs? And, and where are they today? Yeah. So <laughs> Fantex is both a success and a failure story. So they did have IPOs with dozens of athletes. They really had the IPOs. IPOs were successful. Money went out. Partnerships were reached. Um, it, it was sort of a success. And then they collapsed about a year and a half, two years ago. And as best as I can tell, now that they were not a publicly traded company, so I, I don't have access to all the information, but as far as I can tell, they collapsed because their funding model for sort of how they were getting their cut wasn't very good. They were basically using a commission-based model, sort of for each transaction someone made, they were going to take a commission, et cetera. That particular model of making money, I think, my understanding is, was the failure, not the celebrity stock market part. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I, while I can't disclose the identity, I've been in touch with uh, other companies that are attempting to do the same thing as Fantex did on a pretty wide scale basis that are in the process right now, and they have a different funding model in mind. Yeah, it seems like maybe you know, keeping some sort of carry on, on the trade would, would be better uh, for the, the operator. I think this raises some interesting questions about securities regulation. Uh, In in the paper, you mentioned that Fantex, I believe, filed a a registration statement with the SEC. Um, Right. What what does this new brave new world of human capital equity mean in terms of of securities regulation, whether that's registering these equity securities, whether it's uh, making disclosures to investors, or even issues like fraud, insider trading. For example, if I work uh, on an NFL team and I find out that one of our star players uh, has um, has been injured or is, is sick, maybe I might be tempted to, to go on to the the celebrity stock market and, and short that person's tracking stock, for example. So, so what are some of the securities issues that we might see coming down the pike? Yeah, I, that's actually what initially drew my interest into this subject. Uh, so uh, in some of my earlier work before this paper, I've written quite a bit about corporate privacy issues and uh, under what circumstances corporate executives need to disclose otherwise private information to their shareholders. Mm-hmm. And in that work, I sort of show that like it's a little bit ambiguous under the law what would count as material and that corporations all sort of behave differently. And then I actually propose a model for how this should all work. And in that case, it was sort of more attenuated, right? Because the logic there is, okay, let's say a CEO of a publicly traded company gets really sick. Given the amount that we pay corporate CEOs, the assumption, and there's some empirical data, is that sort of if the CEO is really sick, that might impact the corporate performance, but like kind of in an attenuated way, right? But, there, but there's an argument there. Right. This is much more direct. If you've invested in the future career of, a, as you, in your example, an NFL player, and that NFL player is injured, it's not attenuated at all. Like there is no doubt that's going to impact the income potential. And so there's not even really an argument that it's not material. It clearly is material, which of course raises all these really interesting privacy questions which is sort of how much information about someone. So the injury one is easy, but okay, what about marital problems? What about, you know, all sorts of other things, you know, drug abuse, alcohol, partying, right? Like all sorts of other things that that could come up. 
and I particularly sort of am troubled by it in the context of, okay, so there's the trade-off for a CEO, but a CEO is already sort of mated as a celebrity in a way, right? Like that's why they make the big money. Um, in my, in the vision of the celebrity stock market, people will be entering into these contractual relationships early in their careers, right? While they needed the money to fund themselves as they make it, they have not yet made this privacy trade-off. They have not yet become celebrities. And so uh, I think it's really troubling. And I think it really does implicate everything you just brought up. I think insider trading will be an issue. I think sort of disclosure of private facts will be an issue and people will have to make the choice to sort of kind of make themselves subject to disclosure requirements if they want to partake of this method of funding. The the prospect of, of securities, uh, private securities litigation is also interesting uh, as, as well. Um, and, Arguments yeah, over, absolutely. over what disclosure obligations a uh, uh, a celebrity uh, has about his or her uh, kind of life on and off the field or on and off the off the stage. Yeah, no, I think it's exactly right. Although I actually think the solution here might be the same as the solution I offered in the context of the CEO paper. And in that context, I basically argued that rather than just having a regime that say CEOs have to disclose all of this stuff or they don't have to disclose all of this stuff. I actually argue that we should have a, that that can be part of the contractual negotiation and then that's what gets disclosed to shareholders. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that like, let's say you're a really private person who doesn't want to share information about your health to your shareholders. Fine. That's part of the negotiation when you're hired. And then shareholders are told for this corporation, the CEO is not going to disclose this information and they can either invest or not invest. Right. And so I think sort of a similar, so that, I mean, that's not the reality. That was my proposal in my other paper. So in this context, I think a similar thing is possible. I think as part of the contractual negotiation, you could say like, yeah, you know, and I'm not going to, I'm a really private person and I'm not going to disclose the following categories of information, take it or leave it, invest or me or don't. Do you see a divergence in, we, we started the conversation discussing the education financing uh, aspect of human equity investment, which people are probably more familiar with and, and maybe may less of a, an ick factor, perhaps. Uh, do you see a, a divergence between regulating that aspect and the more speculative world of investing in aspiring athletes or artists? Uh, is there conceptual divergence there or are there different regulatory perspectives we should take on those two things? Yeah, it's interesting that you start sort of by the question by sort of saying there's less of an X factor with the education, and I definitely see that. On the other hand, I actually think that there is a stronger case in the celebrity context than there is in the educational context because of what the funding alternatives are. So I spent a long time in the paper talking about how do we currently fund aspiring celebrities and how have we over history. And the reason that was so important to me in the paper is because I really think you can only evaluate this proposed funding model by comparing it to what the alternatives are. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting that the celebrity stock market should be the only option. I think it should be in addition to the other ways that we fund aspiring celebrities. But in the education space, we have a system that has all sorts of flaws, but also fundamentally works, right? Like we have government-backed loans that are sort of guaranteed and set percentages and it sort of gives people an access to education that we think is important. And it basically works in the celebrity context. Like 
we don't really have anything like that for the most part. We don't really have a system that basically works. And so what we see is that sort of from a access perspective, unless you come from money or have someone kind of willing to back you or parents willing to sort of put you up somewhere, et cetera, there's lots of segments of the population who don't have the option to pursue these kinds of careers. So the biggest difference is actually a difference in sort of what the alternatives are. Sure. I think that's a fair point that maybe the existing funding methods for aspiring uh, athletes or, or artists or, or performers uh, can tend to be a little bit exploitive uh, and, and maybe in a way to the extent that they aren't, we aren't producing as much uh, human skill in, in the in the area of sports or music or, or performance as, as we might otherwise if we invested more in it. And you know, it's, it's a lot easier to maybe develop as an artist or a performer if you are spending your time uh, taking acting lessons or uh, developing your craft versus uh, working uh, as a waiter or an Uber driver. Th- those are things that right. that pay the bills, but they're not immediately relevant to to the work that you're you're hoping to to do. Right. Exactly. What are the takeaways uh, from this article and this conversation that you would like uh, listeners to have, whether they are academic listeners or, or just folks listening who might be interested uh, in this, uh, what, what these, these markets might look like? Yeah, I think I wrote the paper because both descriptively, a lot of people weren't aware that sort of some startups had tried this. And I do think that this is going to be something that's going to continue to be tried. And I don't think we as a society or we as lawyers have fully grappled with all the implications. And so I think if we are going to go in this direction, and again, the paper is, it's, it's, it's nuanced. I'm not saying yes, and I'm not saying no. I'm saying let's try it as one of the menu of possible options for how to fund aspiring celebrities. Let's give it a try. There are going to be bad aspects to it. The ick factor is still there. I suggest some sort of contractual limitations to minimize some of the worst of where I see the abuses, right? For example, saying no one should be able to be a majority shareholder in another person. Uh, We should have careful limitations on children entering into these sorts of contracts, those sorts of things. But those are really on the margins. And beyond that, I think we sort of need to give it a try and see as the law develops. But I also think it was important to me to sort of show that as much as I recognize all of the downsides here, and there are many and many challenges, there are also many downsides and challenges with the existing models. And so I also think readers and listeners shouldn't be too quick to dismiss this based on the downsides because there are pros and cons. And I just don't think we have good ways to assess do the pros outweigh the cons unless we give it a try. All right. Sounds like a good, good room for thought. And I'll include a link uh, to the article and the, the show notes uh, for this episode. Our guest today has been Victoria Schwartz, Associate Professor at the Pepperdine University School of Law. Victoria, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me.